Welcome to Season 3, Episode 24. Really excited about Season 3 and uh, what we're bringing to you uh, this year. Uh, and very excited about uh, this next conversation uh, that I'm bringing to you guys. I have the opportunity to speak with the CEO of uh, one of Canada's newest and most successful startups in the fintech industry, BitGold. So I speak with CEO Daryl McMullen. Uh, many of you may not have heard of him, but he's got an amazing story, uh, an amazing background as well. Started off as a director of marketing at Chapters, uh, moved on to do uh, that same role at eBay Canada and help launch that company here in Canada, and then moved over to uh, PayPal as a managing director in Canada from 2006 to 2014. Uh, currently, he advises a number of uh, different startups, uh, especially within his position uh, as an advisor with the fintech division at Mars here in Toronto. And of course, now the CEO of BitGold uh, since 2015. If uh, you are unfamiliar with BitGold, they are one of the most successful uh, recent startups in Canada and probably one of the most successful uh, fintech startups globally. Uh, they just graduated to the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange not too long ago after just under a year in business. So I hope you enjoy this conversation uh, between myself and Mr. Daryl McMullen. Thank you for joining us. We're almost the same age. Do you have any thoughts on Prince? Uh, any thoughts on Prince? It's kind of sad that he, you know, people like that get appreciated after the fact. That he, he was always just there, so it was always good. But yeah, um, like when, for I, me, I actually, you know what? I kind of pissed off. I never saw him live. I was yeah, and exactly. he was just here like a month ago. Yeah, two right? shows. And uh, I almost like just uh, randomly, I was gonna go there and just buy tickets off scalpers or something. I'm like, you know what? I just got to pull the trigger. There's like a few people I haven't seen. Yeah, because I love live music and. Uh, I missed the boat seeing him. But. It was weird because David Bowie, when David Bowie passed, I was like, yeah. okay, he was he was good. And then I heard a bunch of these songs that he wrote that other people sang. Like, yeah. oh, wow. But I remember coming out of a meeting, what was it Thursday? Wednesday or Thursday? And hearing that Prince had died, and literally, the weirdest thing happened, I couldn't work. I, go, I don't understand why this is affecting kinda, me. Kind of a shitty year for music so far, right? It has been. It has been, but um, I figured that you know, 1999 or Purple Rain were on your oh radar back. Sure, back in the day. Back in the day, <laughs> when I had more hair, your hair looks fine. <laughs> A few more grays these days. Yeah, but, but uh, no, thank you for coming in. Yeah. This is episode 24. Cool. So, uh, sorry, episode 25. I need to change my notes. But um, you went to Ryerson University. I did. You've been creeping me. Till well, I had to do some research. Okay. <laughs> and you're very good. And what you don't put online. <laughs> really? So you're going to have to fill in some of the gaps. And I think one of the gaps is you, you graduated in 1997. Yeah. And then by 1998, you're director of marketing at Chapters. Yeah. How does that happen? It was funny. Well, actually, I started there as kind of a, a junior person, but I quickly accelerated. I got promoted twice within eight months. Okay. It was like the oddest there was like one of the most random, odd meetings I think right, I've ever been in. Right place at the right time? Uh, or my boss was in the wrong place at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> my boss who had hired me 
uh, ended up reporting to me within eight what? months. What? Yeah. <laughs> it was very, I remember being in the meeting, walking into a meeting, and, and the president at the time said, I don't like this is the way this is set up. He's like, we're going to do role reversal and see how that works out. So yeah. now, Daryl, she reports to you. Wow. And, so now <laughs> and that was like startup phase too, so it was a little bit radical. But yeah. Um, that was a wild time at, at Chapters Online too because, uh, you know, that was like 10 people in the back of a book warehouse trying to figure out e-commerce at the time. There was no such thing as Amazon yet here. There was no... Amazon was out though, wasn't it? It was out in the U.S., but yeah. there was no like Canadian retailer doing e-commerce yet at all. So it was like very, okay. very early days. And we were literally trying to figure out how to launch an e-commerce platform. And that went from 10 of us to 440 people within 18 months. Wow. So it was kind of wild growth. Uh, and it and was most of those people were engineers or? Everything. Customer service, marketing, you know, across the board. Yeah. Um, and w that was kind of like early dot-com days so there this was no before indigo yeah there's no playbook for anything like yeah a, a, you know every sort of internet marketing deal we were doing this whole idea of turning marketing scientific and tracking and analytics and yeah and growth hacking before anyone knew what the hell growth hacking was so you're like um, learning as you go along yeah it was all very pioneering uh it seems very primitive and basic now yeah looking back on it but yeah. seeing how things have expanded but it was definitely um, you know transforming retail commerce to a next level i remember explaining to people it was funny it was like trying to explain to someone e-commerce for the first time it's like yeah, yeah you go on a website you look at books and you can buy it and have it shipped to your house and they'd be like well, why would i do that there's a bookstore right down the street yeah <laughs> it didn't it didn't click it didn't make any sense um but i was i was thinking that absolutely this will be transformative in so many ways mm -hmm. um, and um i think i've been you know every place i went to People never really understood the value prop that it was bringing for people yet. Because after after chapters, it was eBay. And yeah. I remember explaining the eBay to people for the first time, and because no one knew what it was yet. And it was yeah. like, yeah, it's this. We're going to gamify used goods, and you're going to feel like you're, you're buying someone's used stuff. Yeah. But you're going to feel like you won it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right? right. And you're going to feel so amazing that you beat someone else for that item. And just yeah. the whole psychology of winning a used item, but leveraging commerce into a kind of a global marketplace and getting rid of the whole fulfillment issue that early e-commerce sites had because they couldn't scale up their fulfillment on the back end. That You can, you can sell a lot on online electronically, but fulfilling it physically was always a challenge. Mm -hmm. Turn, you know, pivot to a marketplace where individuals are all buying and selling themselves, and you're just connecting dots and creating a, a much more efficient marketplace. So, so you started there, I guess, 2001 at yeah. eBay. Yeah. Um, what was it like? Um, what was it like with with Amazon? Because it seems to me that you know they're sort of like, I, were they the giant back then as well that you're trying to compete with? I don't know if it was competition yet. I think everyone was just, everyone, everything was still net new and there was so much green field. Mm -hmm. Like we weren't all fighting over the same slice of the pie. We were like, there's tons of pie for everyone. Let's just figure yeah. out who eats the most first. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was, what was interesting about that, and I think there was a lot, a lot of, I feel very fortunate where, you know, that first career experience was, it was fun being part of a kind of an innovative at the time, a very innovative kind of leading e-commerce retailer in chapters. Mm -hmm. eBay ended up being this kind of global 
leading e-commerce partner and kind of the original like version Gen One. Sure. Not a lot of them, right? You can count maybe on one hand. What, yeah. like Yahoo, eBay, you know, who else is around from that era? Right? The Alta Vistas and the Excites of the world are all kind of That's crying, right. right? Um, well, Amazon started early too, I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just books. At they, the were, time, but they were pre Google almost. Yep, definitely it was. Yeah. Because I remember being Google's first client. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, eBay was a very big client for, for Google early on. I think we were a pretty big percentage of their total okay. uh, ad spend. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, eBay was interesting, a very interesting experience too, because you were, were, you were building out a business here in Canada, for the market of Canada, but you also saw the maturing of a global software company going from you know, hundreds of thousands of users to hundreds of millions of users around mm -hmm. the world. Um, and it was one of the first kind of early online communities, early online marketplaces in a lot of ways. So, yeah. um, and everything on how that company operated is not the way you build companies <laughs> historically. Right? So, how was it built? That's not the way you're supposed to build companies. Well, I just I think it's uh, there's lots of playbooks of software companies like that now. Sure, but at sure. the time, you know, people didn't see growth like that. Um, oh, okay. And just the globalization of a company. How do you go from one country to a hundred countries in eighteen months? Mm -hmm. That just yeah. now it's commonplace, but at yeah. the time that was kind of very rare. Something new. What is it like? You know, you you have the early Canadian presence with eBay, mm -hmm. um, a lot different than you know chapters sort of Canadian company, yeah. Canadian brand eBay, American brand Canadian yeah. operations. You get the whole taste of Silicon Valley. That was the early days of Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, and software platforms. Yeah. So what's your, what would be your role as director, I guess director of marketing there as well? Yeah. Um, you know, what was that the was difference? Those were It was all about, it okay. was all about expanding growth. And, and in Canada, I think, I'm trying to think, now, I think when I started, there we had about 45,000 customers. When I left, we had about six and a half million. Mm -hmm. So for a market the size of Canada, that was actually yeah. a pretty, pretty significant growth. That's huge. That was over four years, I think, yeah. So that was yeah. a lot of acquisition. Learning a lot about engagement, and mm -hmm. um, the whole funnel and metrics, and a lot of things that typical SaaS companies look at now. Um, it was kind of a benchmark at the time. Were you back and forth between here and Silicon Valley? Oh yeah, Silicon Valley was like my home away from home. Really? <laughs> what do I mean, you, really, you hear stories, <laughs> and they got the TV show Silicon Valley on now. <laughs> but I'm curious, like, what are some of the wild sort of things that you witnessed there that you go, these guys are crazy, or these guys are going huge, like? What was it like back then? Um, I mean, I think you s see a lot of it now, too. I, I think the insatiable belief of what you're doing mm -hmm. uh, is very inspiring. Silicon Valley is very, very inspiring in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, at, at, at the same time, it's gotten at certain points, and I would say now is another point where it's gotten very frothy, and, um, and there's a lot of... Me too, and iterative stuff, and, and not as innovative in, in some like ways. like an echo chamber, like everyone's doing the same thing. Or? Yeah, sometimes you need to kind of get out of the sandbox to actually look at <laughs> what's going on in the sandbox. Yeah, because there's clearly, um, like, some people will be out there and they'll say, "Oh, you can't start a successful startup without being in the Silicon Valley." I would disagree with that totally. I think, I think it's important to be connected to Silicon Valley. I think it's important to be exposed to it. Uh, for the benefits and you know to what to do and to what not to do. Yeah. Um, but um, 
I think in today's day and age, you don't have to be there at all. I think you can look to it and learn a lot from it and be connected to it because there's a lot of opportunities to expand and, and learn yeah. from a lot of people who are doing stuff. But you don't have to be there. Uh, I think actually some of the more interesting companies are not in Silicon Valley right now. What are some of these interesting companies? Uh, I think you're seeing some pockets in Europe. Um, even if you talk about locally here in Toronto, uh, there's they're starting to get some more interesting um, companies. Uh, obviously, Waterloo has always had a very healthy base of developers and mm -hmm. engineers. And I think depending on where the dollar is at, yeah, <laughs> they either get skewed down to sure down to uh, you know the brain drain that goes down to Silicon Valley because of the dollar benefit and all that sort of stuff. But I think you're starting to see more and more people say, yeah, it's nice to get the Silicon Valley experience, but I kind of actually want to do it here. Hmm. Um, as long as you're connected yeah. to people down there, you can actually get a lot achieved. Why didn't you move down? Or <laughs> did you? <laughs> I'm uh, something that LinkedIn research. It's hmm. a good question. Um, I almost did like three times. Okay. I think I, th I think at many times I felt like I was half there. Like I, I always... <laughs> you back and forth. <laughs> yeah, I had kind of a place there. I had my you know, luggage and all that sort of stuff down there. So I kind of felt like I had two homes. Yeah. Uh, I was way more for personal reasons than professional reasons. Sure. Family here, uh, where to raise a family, all that sort of stuff. And feeling like I'm already exposed to it. I'm already down there a week to two weeks every month. Mm -hmm. So I get my fill. And, yeah. I, and I feel like I'll go away for a week and come back and it's almost kind of like ubiquitous. You don't yeah. feel like you need to be there all the time. All right, cool. Yeah. With, with your background in e-commerce, I'm curious your thoughts on um, you know, companies like Shopify hmm. and uh, what they're doing. You know, what are your thoughts on them? Um, I love to see what they're doing. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm excited um, to to see how far they've been able to take that company because it's not easy to get in that size. Um, I'll tell you kind of a funny story. When I when actually when I started PayPal in Canada after eBay. Yeah. So I launched. Um, it was actually within hours of going to Google. An offer to go to Google, and I uh, turned it down because uh, my, my one of my mentors at the time um, tried to keep me within the organization and said, "There's this PayPal company we just acquired. No idea if we're going to do anything with it in Canada." So you joined them after eBay purchased. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, he said if if staying at um, if giving you PayPal and seeing if you can launch a business in Canada is m more interesting than going over to Google, it's yours. So I. Uh, stayed and built up the, the PayPal business but um, my very first day at PayPal people at the time didn't understand or know what PayPal was other yeah. than this kind of like quirky payment system on eBay um, and it was another time where I had to explain to people this, <laughs> this, this notion of an internet wallet I'm like you know everything your banks tell you about you know don't give your credit card information to anyone or don't, you know, share your financial information. Wrong. <laughs> give all your information to us, just trust us, and we'll take care of the transaction and we'll make it more seamless. So imagine trying to explain that and build trust with people early on. It wasn't the easiest concept to, to explain to people. Um, but my very first day, like, we didn't have a product, we didn't have a website. I, I just Googled PayPal Canada yeah. to see, you know, what was out there. And there was this couple people complaining about PayPal. Yeah. Um, and uh, one wrote a blog post, another some comments, and uh, one guy's name was uh, Mike McDermott. And yeah, Fresh Books. 
Yeah, at the time, <laughs> at the time, that was a little startup in his mother's dining room. Yeah. And another guy was a guy named Toby from Jaded Pixel. Shopify. <laughs> Shopify. And and so when I when we did an official launch of of PayPal in Canada, we had it was a very modest launch party at the Drake. Yeah. In, uh, in, in Toronto. And I remember sitting around a table with with Toby and Mike. And uh, some guys up from Silicon Valley, Osama Bidier, and a couple other guys that are well-known down there. And us just sitting around saying, you know what? This is going to be the future of commerce in this in this country. Wow. There's some very innovative people here, and you watch it. And I was, I was explaining it to the guys in Silicon Valley. They're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, a bunch of Canadian guys. Yeah. Canadian startups. But look where they've been. FreshBooks is kicking it. Yeah. Shopify is kicking it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's great to see. You you always see, and we'll get to, we'll get to Big Gold. Um, you always seem to be, I don't know if, if, if the right phrase is, you know, one step ahead, but you always seem mm. to be at the bleeding edge of, you know, whether it was e-commerce or whether it was online payments or, yeah. you know, now big goal, but, you know, all of these things. Um, I'm a bit of a futurist, maybe. I don't know. Well, did you <laughs> know, like, did you, were you just trusting in, you know, you talked about mentorship, were you, were you just trusting in mentorship? Did you have insights? Did you understand? Did you see what was happening around the world? I'm curious um, I, I've been very fortunate to have some incredible mentors yeah. throughout my life. Um, I don't think they helped me so much on that side of it. It was more about how do I analyze things? How do you analyze people? How do you manage people? How do you manage process? And all, and all that sort of stuff. So I got a, a wealth of knowledge there. But um, I, I don't know. I think I've always been, you know, one of my strengths, I've always been told that you see stuff that other people don't see. Yeah. Right? And you're either connecting dots and maybe because you're tall, you see stuff above <laughs> everyone or whatever the case is. But um, you, you see where the white space is. Yeah. A lot of people look way down the road saying, this is where everything is going to go. Yeah. Uh, and it's almost kind of easy to say that. Okay. But between here and there, there's always this white space of... Like, what are going to be the companies that are actually going to truly transform behavior yeah. and change existing ecosystems? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I thought you know, e-commerce and uh, and then payments um, and and now money. I, I think uh, money needs to be disrupted in many ways. How do you get from e-commerce to like fintech? What's that? Is Actually, I think it's an evolution. I, okay. I think it's totally an evolution. I think yeah, you know, one's about kind of, they're all about transactions at the end of the day. It's just what part of the transaction funnel, ah, right? Consumer sure. buying stuff. How do, you, how do you provide more convenient, more effective and efficient ways for people to be able to buy stuff? Yeah. Um, then how they buy. Where is the friction in that buying process? Well, mm -hmm. it's you know, shopping online, international shopping. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that how do you enable merchants to be able to sell more online? Um, so it was like rather than worrying about the merchandising, you worry about the payments piece. Then you look at the payments piece, and you're like, well, there's still a lot of friction, and you know people always get pissed off, and they have to pay foreign exchange, and there's friction here and friction there, mm -hmm. uh, and you've got all this volatility of currencies around the world. And we live in an era where we probably are are more global citizens today than we've ever been, right? Yeah. Like we we have more friends and family abroad. Um, we travel more internationally. We do more business internationally than ever before. Yet, um, and we're trying to do more and more commerce, but it's it's painful. If you ever tried to do an international payment, you, you feel dirty afterwards. <laughs> right? Someone someone's gotten you know kind of either between the currency or the high processing costs. And, um, 
it just feels prohibitive mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So, um, so it was interesting to think of, you know, where is the next evolution? And, you know, I, I also looked at once I left PayPal. Uh, PayPal got really big, like really big as a company. Mm -hmm. Like when I joined PayPal, I think we had 221 employees globally. Oh. Uh, when I left, it was twenty-one thousand. <laughs> so it's that, an amazing journey of growth, and it was a it was an incredible experience. You know, just to to uh, not see just a business, mm -hmm. but an operation. How do you scale an operation? Um, whether it be you know, and I think the benefit of when you're running kind of a smaller country like Canada, yeah, you kind of have a mini GM hat. Uh, and you get to sure. touch every part of the business: sales, operations, legal, yeah. compliance, uh, you know, external partners, government, you know, media, all that sort of stuff. And so, um, you're learning how a company can grow within a market, but also as a company globally. Like, how yeah. do you scale a global organization? How involved were you on that on that level, the global level? Um, I think I was always uh, provided some pretty uh, strong thought leadership on. Canada was kind of like a mini U.S., but we could okay. w we could operate a lot faster and a lot more efficiently. So we always grew a little bit faster, mm -hmm. um, and we ended up being probably the better playbook for other countries. Okay, right. So you know, if I was talking to my counterparty in Brazil or in Germany or in, in Singapore, they would want to know how we were executing in Canada way more than how they were executing in the U.S. because there was just more things that they could relate to operationally and, okay. and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's this kind of cross-section dynamic on a globalization of a company and yeah. then the localization of the company. How do you mm. localize operations very efficiently and effectively yeah. in a market? And then how do you, from a global standpoint, um, control things from the core and where's the balance between core effectiveness and management versus local effectiveness and management. Hmm. I was curious about, you know, the role of these American companies in Canada, you know, mm. so, you know, eBay and PayPal, um, you know, and you, you answered it, you know, where a, co a country like Brazil might lean on how Canadians, you know, or, or how the Canadian operation is working versus the American uh, counterparts. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, though, from a global perspective, the you know, we live here, but you know, you said sometimes you got to leave to understand, to look so, back. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Canada is always, whenever I travel, always seemed very small. You know, in comparison, you know, to globally, especially you know, compared whenever you know, with our neighbors down to the south. Hmm. Uh, but I'm curious in terms of the importance of these global companies, um, the importance of Canada as a market. Uh, you know, as yeah. as a market the size of like California. You know, yeah. versus. But. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I guess from it depends on how you look at it. Because yeah. if you're a company that's operating in Canada, just focused on the Canadian market, yeah, it's a smaller market opportunity. It is what it is. Probably don't just go by the population value, though, because I know lots of other countries that are like 80 million, 90 million people, like Brazil, or billions of people in China. Yeah, like it wasn't. Yeah, you know, like Canada actually, in terms of value per user. Mm. Significantly higher than a lot of other countries. Sure, sure. And for commerce and business, Canada is actually one of the largest cross-border businesses. We buy more internationally and we sell more internationally as a percentage of total. Mm -hmm. 
more than almost any other country. Hmm. And so um, it wasn't just about the market. It was about how you could execute something in the market here and what impact it had around the world in a lot of ways. And so, uh, you know, this, I, I think even though I was kind of running PayPal Canada, there was a ton of exposure around international because 60% of our volume was international. So I was much more fixated on which corridors are working, how can we light th certain things up, where is the inefficiency okay. between different corridors. Um, and so I always had a global commerce lens on, lens on my head, even though I may have had P&L responsibility for a local market. Yeah. It was all about how do you make things much more effective from a globalization hmm. standpoint. Interesting. And so you leave PayPal. Yeah. You don't go straight to BitGold, or maybe you do, but there's... No. You, you become, I don't know, like a board member, investor in a bunch of other companies. Yeah, I kind of wanted to get back to some entrepreneurial roots uh, yeah. I, I, for a couple of reasons. One, I touched on mentorship earlier. I felt very fortunate through my career to have some very impactful mentors mm -hmm. uh, in, in my career. And I felt there was a little bit of an opportunity to give some of that back uh, okay. because I, 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 I would... I would get contacted by a lot of startups, All right. or I would see what they're doing, and very quickly I'd, I'd, I'd be like, "No, you got to do this, this, and this." Or that. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to tell them how to do their business or run their business. Sure, but, sure. But I also felt like, man, some of these people could benefit from a mentor, not because it's the only advice they're getting from their VC. Mm -hmm. It's a problem. No <laughs> 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 disrespect to VCs, but it's sure. one. There's one perspective, and it's one motivation. Yeah. Um, so I was doing a little bit of that. I was also, um, I felt I was in such a disciplined operating mode. Like starting PayPal up and, and near the end, it was very different operations for me. So um, I wanted to kind of get back to exploratory, understanding how you can disrupt a, a new market or a new industry. or um, and, and so fintech was interesting. Health tech was another category that I'm still very, very passionate about as well. I think okay. digi digital health is is a category that's still in its infancy Is that how you and Freed hooked up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Because I know he's very So ironically, Freed and I were mentoring the same guy. And the which, guy... Which company was this? No, it was, a, it was an individual. Oh, okay. And, and, and that individual said, uh, you guys, I both look up to both of you guys. You guys should meet. <laughs> because I'm getting advice from both of you. <laughs> and that's how Freed and I met. So, um, Freed's a great guy. And yeah. we've, we've had some very okay. intellectual, stimulating conversations. Yeah. So he's a great guy. Excellent. You should listen to the interview I did with him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll yeah. shoot that to you. Um, so, you work with Blink? Mm, Blink? Oh, yeah. Then a bunch of them. Yeah, there's an analytics company, uh, mobile company. Uh, Another payments company uh, that we ended up selling to Square very quickly. Okay. Uh, so that was fun, just going through that whole process as well. And nice. Um, taking a startup and going through a whole M&A process, and so it was it was helpful going through you know four or five companies, helping them go through fundraising, mm -hmm. um, knowing whatever my strengths were, and seeing how I could apply it to the company and help out the founders of that company. Um, meanwhile, figuring out where I want to kind of. You know, spend my time on next. Yeah. Type of thing. Um, so, how did the opportunity with Big Gold? How did that come about? Hmm. Um, it's funny, actually. Um, so, Big Gold, um, as a company, Big Gold launched 
May 4th of last year. It's a mm. very early. Happy uh, birthday almost. Yeah, it's almost. It's almost <laughs> a year. Is there, um, is there a birthday party? <coughs> I'm sure we'll figure something yes? out. Yeah, okay. nothing formalized yet, yeah, but yeah. I'm sure we'll have a little bit of a bash. Cinco de Mayo? Uh, yeah, it's just, just uh, pretty <laughs> close to that. Yeah, you're right. So there will be a bit of a theme in there. Um, so I wasn't there at the beginning. I, I didn't actually even know of the company. Oh, okay. Um, uh, two founders of the company, Roy Sabog and Josh Crum. Two uh, two brilliant minds, very different, diverse backgrounds. Okay. They had decided to start that company. We can talk about that company in a little bit, but um, even though they they <laughs> very kind of unconventional route for a startup, a from Toronto and, and b just in general, they um, launched May fourth. They went public on the Toronto Venture Exchange. I think May thirteenth of last year. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like literally like ten days or. After the after the launch of the site, they decided to go public on the venture exchange for a variety of reasons: um, different access to capital markets. Uh, probably more importantly, they saw very early on if you're going to be a fintech company, there's there's tens of thousands of fintech companies out there. But almost everyone sort of calls themselves. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's actually an it's a bubble word now. I actually Is it, yeah. I'm not a fan of the word because it's. I think whenever a word becomes a very popular hashtag, that just it's over. Then. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the um, there are a lot of fintech companies out there, and a lot of them talk about their technology, but they don't talk about their numbers. Uh. And um, I think if you look at the core of fintech, if anyone's going to use you for financial services, one of the cornerstones is trust. You need to trust who you're working with, and that's why people still hang out at their banks because they trust their bank. There's a familiarity there. Yeah. Uh, then the fact that they're having your back, there's a, you know, all that sort of stuff. So you can create a cute little app. It's very easy to create a, you know, financial services app and do an algo and, and uh, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but if people don't trust you, they're not really going to go all in. You're going to be kind of always sure. on the fringe. And so um, I don't think Roy or Josh ever saw this company as a startup. They saw it as enterprise year zero. This is a very big and bold mission um, that can have a pretty significant impact globally. And so we should operate under that cadence from day one. So having full transparency as a publicly traded company, having um, you know third party auditing by you know a big four auditor like KPMG, um, providing financials, providing KPIs every month. And you know, this is where I was saying oh. a, lot of, a lot of companies talk about their technology and their app, but uh, we actually kind of downplay our technology, even though it's probably one of our biggest strengths. Um, but we focus on the numbers and the business and the ecosystem and the impact that we're having for people. And uh, that, if you're going to be successful in fintech, you need to operate an innovative scale, and you got to get scale fast. You know, having five thousand customers, mm-hmm. you're not going to have a dent. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, even in your own users, right? They're not going to, you know, where are you in the consideration set of all their financial services activities? Yeah, you're not going to be uh, near the center unless you actually uh, are at a much bigger scale. So what what is the <coughs> the problem or, or the, um, you called it friction earlier, mm. that Big Gold is trying to ease? Um. Well, I, I think at first it comes back to gold, and a lot of people, um, it's almost kind of a lost narrative 
around gold. There's been a bad narrative, I think, mm -hmm. in over the last 20 or 30 years around gold, at least in the West. I think the rest of the parts of the world, they understand the fundamentals of gold much more intrinsically than we do in the West. I think here it's been labeled, I don't know, you can ask probably 10 people what's gold. And you probably get 10 different answers. Yeah. And they'll say, oh, it's jewelry. It's a commodity. Sure. Uh, it's a pet rock. <laughs> uh, it's an investment. Mm. Um, the, and if you boil it down, what is gold? Gold is money. Gold is the root of all money. And, and you know, we could sit here and talk for hours on the basis of why gold is the best money and um, it, you know, why it's intrinsic value. It's timeless. Um, and so it's... Um, if you actually look from the mathematics at it, actually outperforms every major currency around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and we live in this era now. I find it fascinating over the last you know, seven to ten years. So if you think of millennials, um, they don't understand the concept of a savings account because we're in an era of negligible interest rates. Mm. Right? Sure. Like, why put money in a, in a bank account that gives you if you think about this Nothing. conceptually it gives you less interest than the rate of inflation yeah so that's not savings that's yeah. erosion yeah <laughs> right sure. you put a hundred dollars in a bank account today it's going to be worth less a year from now mm -hmm. so I don't know how you consider that savings um, and it's kind of a lost thing uh, I mean I think even actually if you get well, not to get too philosophical on it but if you actually even step back further and say what's money what is money yeah. you, you can you can look up the academic definitions of sure. money. It's like a unit of account, a medium of exchange, a store of value, all those yeah. type of... You need to have all those three elements in order to define as, as money. But uh, the way, probably a sim more simplistic way of looking at money, money equals stored labor, right? You sell a good, you provide a service, hmm. you get compensated for it. Yeah. And that represents your labor. The value, yeah. Right? Okay. And, um, but... What happens when that dollar, that currency that you're in, actually devalues? Hmm. And we're in an era now where all the currencies give you negligible interest rates um, from their central banks, and uh, they're decreasing in value. So there's not really an incentive to hold onto it, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And so um, if you, uh, people always keep asking, like. What's going on with the world? How come the middle class is shrinking, and you know the one percenters are taking on more, you know, wealth, and it's it's not trickling down? Yeah. And there's more of the have-nots, and we're in this era of the sharing economy. Why? Because of technology, or is because well, maybe I can't afford a house, or I can't afford a car, so sure. we just rent everything now, <laughs> or yeah. whatever the case is. But it's not necessarily a good thing. There are definitely some efficiencies in some elements, but mm -hmm. if there's one thing you should own: it's your money, and. Uh, mm -hmm. It's concerning when you see, you know, um, when you think of things like inflation, you, you see it all around. I've noticed it even just over the last couple months with, you know, here in Canada, the, the Canadian dollar has gone down over the last year or so. And people say there's not inflation. But you look at the prices of everything. Now, every year, everything's up 5 6%. Yeah. Has your wage gone up 5 or 6% six, six on average? No. It's probably or one or two percent or whatever the case is and your savings aren't accumulating faster than your inflationary costs um, <laughs> we were actually complaining in the office this week too um, I won't name the, the restaurant that we frequented for lunches but 
the portions are even smaller. So there's there's shrinking going on. They're like they're not changing the price. Yeah. Because they know there's price but elasticity. They're giving you less. They're giving you less. <laughs> right? And and you're seeing the you know, portions of this and that and all that. And so um, yeah, people are getting kind of like realizing that their purchasing power is actually eroding. Mm-hmm. Um, gold, the fundamentals of gold, though, over time, uh, it's always been the world's best performing currency. Mm-hmm. It's outperformed every major free fiat currency over time. It doesn't matter where you're in the world. There's there's ebbs and flows in sort of a short term, if you look at it like a currency. Volatility is certainly a lot less than most of the currencies, but... Um, over time, if you're going to peg your life or your money, if that's stored labor, you probably want to have it in the best performing currency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it fascinated me. I mean, a couple things fascinated me. Going back to the PayPal days, that's you know, back in 2008 and nine is when Bitcoin launched. Yes. Uh, and Bitcoin was really... I was fascinated by it early on. I was like, wow, someone's creating... A non-central bank currency. Okay, it's all technology-based. It's one global currency, very digital, very developer-friendly. Yeah, check all those boxes. Very cool. Um, so I, I would call it, it. It's probably underappreciated right now, in the sense of it'll probably be looked back upon as kind of one of the more interesting experiments of money in a long time. I'm not hearing too much about it anymore. Yeah. It well, the problem, uh, its strength is also also its weakness. The fact that it's completely decentralized. Yeah. There's no central body yeah. to actually talk about it. Um, huh. Actually, I use a comparison. Um, let's use another industry, the music industry. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've been around as long as I have. So <laughs> you, you've been buying music probably around the same amount of time. Yeah. Um, you know, 15 years ago, we were going down to Young Street to HMV and Sound the Record Man or, or yeah. any sort of whatever your local record store is, and buying uh, you know your CDs or your records or whatever. And then along came Napster. Yeah. And Napster kind of freaked everyone out. It was very radical. It was, it was very cool. Coolest, yeah. It was super cool. Everyone was like addicted to it. They were spending hours on it. Yeah. And it, you were completely anonymous. It completely threw every regulatory <laughs> thing out of the like copyright. Yeah. Screwed. Um, jurisdictions. You know, at that time, you know, remember when you buy a CD that was on import because it got issued at a different time in Europe versus North America? Yeah. All at the window. Distribution of music, there was no borders. It was all democratized. Level playing field. Exactly, right? So it democratized the access of music and accessibility and all that sort of stuff. So really cool technology, but very disruptive in a lot of ways, too, and and um, uh, hurt a lot of people in a lot of ways. Uh, but a, an interesting experiment, a lot of lessons learned on how technology can change things yeah and then along comes itunes and all itunes did was take the idea and concept of napster as a technology and distributed music and digital music but they created this closed loop system on top of it so they created an account structure on top of it they connected all the payment systems connected all the record labels and the artists and there was accountability yeah and there was a safe environment for people to feel like they can transact uh, and I think that's actually really, and they really transformed the entire distribution of an industry. Mm-hmm. It took about 10 years for it to get back to a healthy state. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of wild to see how that industry completely transformed, right? I, I actually think the same way about money. So I actually, I would call Bitcoin the Napster of currency, right? Um, very destructive in, in many yeah. ways, right? Um, there's no regulation around it. 
Um, so it's a money launderer's dream, perhaps, at some point. Sure. Um, there's no reversibility of transactions. So if I send you money, you don't deliver what you're supposed to. Oh, well, who cares? No one else knows about the transactions. There's no one to go to. There's no yeah. protections. Uh, there's no physical underlying asset. It's just a digital token. So if you lose your token, it's like money falling out of your pocket out of a taxi. Like hmm. You're kind of screwed. Um, so, again, like I don't want to sound like I'm bashing Bitcoin. I think it's actually fascinating and very interesting. But uh, the other thing, too, creating a currency from scratch is really hard, right? Because you're having to deal with, with market cap and volatility. And so it swings. Like, you look at the volatility of Bitcoin. It's up and down like crazy. So as a merchant, if I accept Bitcoin as a form of payment, yeah. I sell you a TV in the morning for a thousand bucks. And by the afternoon, Bitcoin's worth 15% less. Well, there goes all your profits on the TV. That's right. And it, it literally will happen in the same day. <laughs> so it has some shortcomings. You know, and, for, and for all the hype that Bitcoin gets, mm -hmm. and other cryptocurrencies, I'll throw them all in the same basket. Ethereum, XPR, you can go down the list. You basket them all together, all these cryptocurrencies. The entire market cap of all of them combined is about $10 billion. Yet there's been more than $20 billion in venture capital money gotten into companies that are actually wow. based on those currencies. So if that's not a bubble, I don't know what it is. But, um, but it, 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 again, it, I think it's a very interesting you know, pocket of innovation in a lot of ways. But it has some shortcomings as an as a underlying currency that someone can truly rely on. It almost made it okay to disrupt that space. Yeah, but because then you look at gold and, and <coughs> you know, so the founders of the company, Roy and Josh, are, are two incredible backgrounds. Um, Roy was a long, short hedge fund manager, understood the capital markets very well, uh, went through the 08 crisis um, and, you know, being able to protect people's wealth and, and learned either the hard way or the right way about gold and its fundamentals, and, but also saw the inefficiencies around gold. The settlement system is archaic. Like, how do you buy gold? How do you buy gold? <laughs> I have no clue. Right? Like, yeah. There's, there's probably, you know, there's three ways to buy it. You, you, can, you can buy a gold ETF, which is not really buying gold. It's an investment product that sure. you're betting on the price of gold relative to U.S. dollars. Hmm. And it was, a, it was a very clever management vehicle or investment vehicle designed to create a lot of management fees, but give people liquidity, allowing to be able to buy in and out consecutively conceptually against gold or get exposure to gold without having to own it so it's kind of an interesting thing but um, if you actually wanted the physical stuff I mean there's a gold there's probably within a two kilometer radius of here there's probably a shop that sells gold coins <laughs> sure <laughs> in every town in the world yeah. right um, so you can buy them but you know they're you're buying within five to eight percent of the real price so there's like a markup um, and then what do you do with them you put them in a shoebox under your bed yeah doesn't really have any utility. You can't spend it. You can't chop it up and sure. all that sort of stuff. Um, if you're a baller, you can buy a bar of gold, right? You call up, <laughs> you, you call up your broker. A bar, yeah. Bars of gold start at 50 grand. Jeez. Right? So, you know, and it goes up from there. So, like, a kilo bar is at 52 grand a day. Um, but how do you buy it? You call up your broker, and they would go, it was, it was bought under a system called OTC5, over-the-counter five-day settlement like we have check settles over five days yeah, yeah it's the same system for 40 years like it hasn't changed it's archaic 
Um, but there was no sense of urgency or immediacy for it. It was like, yep, we will go find you a bar of gold, and then we'll... they got to physically find the bar. And then they'll call you up, and they'll say, okay, where do we ship it? Try shipping a bar of gold. Then you have to insure it. Then you have to store it. So there's storage fees, there's insurance fees, there's shipping costs. Um, and all of that friction took away the inherent value of the performance of that gold versus mm. other currencies. Um, having said that, gold's a $7 trillion market. Um, to put that in perspective. So yeah, it's like all those cryptocurrencies, about $10 billion. All of the paper money in the world... All the currencies combined, all the paper fiat currency, is about seven trillion dollars. Gold's the same size, hmm. seven trillion dollars. Is it because of the value of the gold, or is it the transactions? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's just in terms of the market cap, the size yeah, okay. of, of the gold market. It's over, and it's actually one of the most liquid currencies as well. Like there's hmm. U.S. dollar, euro, and, and golds, but the third most liquid instrument on the planet. Um, over seventy billion dollars bought and sold every day, not by governments, by you know. Uh, trust organizations, corporations. Um, the accessibility for individuals, though, has been pretty limited. It actually, kind of, when you step back and having spent, you know, 10 years in payments and commerce and all that sort of stuff, and seeing all this innovation that's going on around fiat currency, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, the reality is, you know, there's actually been a ton of innovation in money. <laughs> you can go back, you can go back 30 years, like, the check at its time was yeah. like pretty cool, modern. I can write on a piece of paper ten thousand dollars and send it to you, and that represent. Like, and the fact that that would process was yeah. a, as a check in its day, that was very, very modern technology. The idea of a plastic card that you could yeah. then go up to an ATM and cash would come out—that was mm -hmm. like really cool technology. E-commerce comes along. The idea of being on, online, PayPal, yeah. the whole idea of an internet wallet. Now you can buy off your mobile phone, yeah. and then you can, you know, you now you off your watch or any other sort of wearable. So there's been all this kind of actually really cool innovation, but actually the innovation wasn't around money. The innovation continued to accelerate as communications continued to accelerate. It was almost dependent upon it. All of them, actually, yeah. all of them are really just communication protocols. Hmm. Right, it, it's just I'm using some sort of protocol to move money from point A to point B. Yeah, and I'm I'm relying on the central bank stack. They're all sitting on top of the central bank stack. I want to move money from point A to point B, whether it's from this bank to this bank, or this country to that country, or I have to go through this currency or that other currency. It doesn't matter if you look at payment systems like Stripe or Square or PayPal or existing acquirers. They all have different flavors and different angles of position position yet, but they all sit on top of this currency stack that is depreciating because mm. they are backed by debt. Um, and so the value of them <laughs> is depreciating over time. And um, there's a lot of inefficiency, especially when it comes to, because they're all domiciled by countries. So as soon as you have to do, you know, transactions internationally, I'm sure yeah. you yourself, you ever traveled? Yeah. You get dinged every time. You lose all the time. Right? And, you know, that trip down to the Turks and Caicos all of a sudden <laughs> costs a lot more yeah. than it would have a year ago or whatever the case is. Um, and why, right? Like is, is um, going back to the notion of, you know, you saved up for a trip for a year and you could have saved your ass off for a year. At the end of that year, the currency is down 20%. Yeah. You know, it, it, you're no further ahead. No, it's kind of like it's a bit of a pain. But um, So there was inherent opportunity of, like, Here's a $7 trillion market. 
that outperforms this other stack, mm -hmm. but there's been no innovation on it, no banking apps, no payment apps, yeah. yet it's, you know, very liquid and one of the world's best performing currencies. And it's global. Like, like I mean, it doesn't it's matter where you go in the world. Yeah. You know, ask someone from the Middle East what they think of gold. Ask someone from India what do they think of gold. Ask someone from China what do they think of gold. From Latin yeah. America, from Europe. Um, they all get it and understand it yeah. at some level or another, but they actually uh, see its intrinsic value. And it's timeless, right? Like it's... Um, yeah, I've got some here. You ever held gold? Away, like, I'm not giving it away. <laughs> Have you ever held gold before? Like real physical I'll, gold? I'm going to say no. All right. I'll tell you yes, but oh, jeez. That is heavy. Right? It doesn't It doesn't feel like from this earth. How many pieces are there here? How, how much money do you think that is, man? I, I have... I'm going to try cheating here. I'm looking at it. I don't know. How much do you think one of those things is? It says 60 on it. Does that mean anything? No. No. It's a trick. That's about eleven thousand dollars in my hand. hand. Yeah, I'm gonna need to need to take a photo of this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Works great at the bar all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I mean that, a lot of people think of like, oh, they didn't realize gold. It's it's one of the even rarest. Just one, even just one. Yeah. Is, <laughs> it's heavy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the beauty of this, right, is. You know, once you mine gold once, yeah. it's here forever, right? I can throw this in the ocean a thousand years from now and pick it up. It's one of the only metals. It's one of the more rare um, elements on Earth. Yeah. But it's also one of the only ones that's immortal to oxygen. So is there a, f but is there like a finite amount? Uh, yeah, but the, the, the key about um, gold is that it lasts forever, right? Oh, so... Sure. So, the, I mean, and that's why it was determined as money early on, You can't right? rip it up like a dollar bill. Well, not only that. I mean, if you think of, go back to, like, how else do you trade back in the day? You could trade, like, tomatoes or sheep yeah, or, 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 or and all that sort of stuff. But even any other sort of commodity, right? Everything has, everything has some sort of a life cycle, right? Sure. Like steel rusts, you know, copper oxidizes, um, you know, everything kind of uh, oil evaporates. Yeah. Uh, right. They all have a shelf life. Everything in life has a shelf life. Even you. Yeah. Right? We, we like as humans, you know, we're done after what ninety years. Some of us more, some of us less. But you know, what I mean, sure. there's a shelf life. Yeah. There isn't a shelf life for gold. Hmm. <laughs> right. This will be around forever, and it's divisible uh, uh, exponentially, and and so that's why it always uh, is seen as a solid unit of account, medium of exchange. Um, and a store of value because it doesn't it's it's timeless in terms of its value to give you an idea so this is um i don't know let's take four of these right so four of these is about 2200 bucks right that's a nice suit Jeez. right yeah that's 2200 so that's a nice suit this was also a really nice toga back yeah. in the roman days it doesn't change in value mm. right um josh uh, actually wrote a really good piece trying to explain you know the impact of inflationary pressures and, and <laughs> costs go up but people feel like they're not getting ahead like even though they're getting a salary increase like their costs are going up faster than their salary increases yeah um but if you if you think of um remember that movie again you're, you're the same age as me remember back to the future yeah right marty mcfly gets yeah. in the car it was october 1985 
in the DeLorean and he fast forwards to 2015. Yeah. Uh, we actually sat there and said, okay, what if Marty McFly got in the car with a thousand bucks? And when he came forward to 2015, what could he buy with that thousand dollars cash in 2015 versus 1985? And and we've got some really really smart people on the on the gold money and the gold team that actually went and did a did a price index and actually went and looked at it and said, okay, a movie ticket was in 1985 was two dollars and fifty cents. Now it's twelve bucks. Uh, a Big Mac was a dollar seventy nine. Now it's four fifty. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, an average house was $89,000. Now the average house is $350,000. Yeah. Maybe not in Toronto, but no, yeah, yeah. nationally. Um, so then, so that was the price index over the, that yeah. time period based on dollars. You said, okay, what about gold? And so a price of a movie ticket in gold in 1985 was 0.15 grams. Price of movie ticket today, 0.15 grams. Same. Doesn't change. Hmm. Same thing with a house, a car, a tank of gas, education. It goes down the list. It actually, it's the weight of gold actually doesn't change in value. Currencies go up and down, and inflationary costs. But related to the currency, it's that much more valuable. Yeah, so time. it's not, it doesn't, like gold doesn't make you rich. It's not an investment. Yeah. Right? It doesn't create capital, you know, uh, cash flow or anything like that. Sure. But it does preserve your purchasing power. Which is really important for people to realize, and, it, and it's actually that's why, you know, you ask why I kind of was intrigued by this company. Yeah, I in no way, shape, or form can take credit for the idea. Um, you know, Roy and Josh are very, very smart guys um, that actually put this together. Um, but I saw the ability to, given my commerce background and my payments background, on how can we provide incredible value to people around the world to not only preserve their purchasing power from volatile currencies, but actually can we make gold usable again using technology and software mm. as a better way to transact, a better way. People don't want to exchange currencies. They want to exchange value. Sure. And so it, in, a, in some ways it's kind of symbolic. You take the world's oldest asset class and best performing currency married up with the most modern technology and a settlement system that's outside of the banking infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But in the regulatory environment, it's very important. So you're within the regulatory environment, you're a closed-loop system, you provide protections, you do all the anti-money laundering, all that sort of stuff. Kind of like the iTunes of money in some ways. Can you create that ecosystem? And that got me really stoked when I I saw the idea here. I've seen lots of different payments concepts. Um... But the idea of going right to the core and disrupting money is transformative if you can execute it right. And I don't think you need to be in Silicon Valley to do that. Um, and that was another interesting idea was, the, you know, what appealed me to the company was uh, the idea of launching a global company here in Toronto. Yeah. Everyone says, like, why Toronto? Well, why not Toronto? Toronto is actually, from a Canadian, from a, from a global standpoint... Canada is actually one of the most trusted financial services countries in the world. Like our banks are very stable. They do yeah. tons of business internationally. They're you know they've always been considered kind of best of breed operationally. Mm-hmm. And we're actually one of the biggest gold countries in the world too. We do a ton of mining. Yeah, uh, we right. finance a lot of minings around the world on Bay Street. So the idea of uh, using some smart technology people in Toronto 
leveraging the financial services strength of this country and the gold know-how, mm-hmm. Toronto actually probably makes more sense than anywhere else to launch a global gold company. Now, from a user perspective, yeah, um, I've had the chance to not just sit down with you today, but uh, late last year, you know, chat for a half an hour to understand the value. But I'm curious, you know, what are people utilizing that you've seen? Yeah. How are people utilizing your platform? So there, there's an evolutionary stage to this. So, th- I mean, at its basic level, yeah. so how it works, uh, we use technology to make access to gold very, very simple. And it's, so it's not a cryptocurrency, it's physical gold. It actually kind of blew me away when you actually started looking at what is the underlying infrastructure that already exists. So Brinks, mm-hmm. one of the largest custodians in the world, got over 100 vaults around the world. And these vaults are like, you know, out of James Bond. They're, you yeah. know, the lasers, the shotguns, all that sort of stuff. They're there. Um, and how do they maintain the gold? On spreadsheets. <laughs> because there was no sense of urgency. Sure. Right? Like I saw they managed and collected the inventory of gold. So, you know, Roy and Josh had the idea of, um, you know, working with some smart people. And Alessandro, our CTO, is one of the top digital identity and cryptographers uh, and blockchain experts in the world. And so the idea of, you know, how do we create our own proprietary digital ledger system that changes the settlement system for gold? So you can get immediate access to the wholesale gold bullion dealers, mm-hmm. all the different players. You get a real-time price, and you're able to buy gold and have it sit in a vault under your name, under your custody, within seconds. So you don't have to worry about shipping, you don't have to worry about delivery, um, you don't have to worry about insurance, you don't mm-hmm. have to worry about storage costs. Those are all taken care of by the platform. But you can literally pull out your credit card or, or link your bank account and say, I want to buy $50 worth of gold. And so Brinks will literally go into the vault, find a serialized bar of gold, and say, okay, you now own $50 worth of title of that, of that physical gold. So now you own an asset, an asset yeah. that's sitting in a, in a vault. And rather than wait five days... <laughs> you have it right away. In seconds. Yeah, so now you own it. So that's... Um, so access to that. Yeah, so yeah. democratizing the access of gold. I could physically say I want that. If you wanted the physical delivery... Yeah. Yeah, so here's here's like kind of a tamper-proof... More gold. More gold. <laughs> you know, it comes in a little tamper-proof serialized pack. So if you actually you want the physical something. gold... Yeah, you absolutely can have it there. But a lot of people... Um, the, the beauty of this platform is not about just oh now I can buy gold whenever I want sure it's now I can use it Mm. because you've created this platform that has its own settlement system and cycle so I can I can you're pulling more gold well yeah but in a in a card form right so this is not a credit card it's a prepaid card right so think of it think of this debit the way to think of big gold and and gold money is kind of a global debit network Every other de- debit network is domiciled on a, on a local currency mm-hmm. and have local restrictions. The gold is a global currency, and this is a global debit network that we built on top of gold. Yeah. And so this is tied to my gold balance and my Bitgold account. Okay. So if I go out to the bar here, I can sell my gold for currency in this transaction. I'm going to Washington tomorrow. I'm speaking yeah. in Washington. Uh, I can use this at a point of sale there. It sells my gold for U.S. dollars. Automatically. Yeah. If I go to London the week after, I can sell my gold for British pounds. I never pay foreign exchange. 
because I'm not going between two currencies. Mm. I have a gold balance that I can yeah. buy and sell from any currency. Interesting. Um, so you never have to worry about timing. Nope. You're just you're you're pegging your labor. Yeah. In the world's best performing currency. Yeah. Right. You stay in that, and then you move and transact into whatever fiat currency that you need to. Mm. That's that's on an individual basis. Uh, I would rather be in a savings account based on gold than on a fiat currency. I mean, if I look at look at Canada uh, since January this year, and it'll probably go up more tomorrow, but um, gold's up about 9.5% against the Canadian dollar just since January. Hmm. So you could have $1,000 sitting in a Canadian bank account, yeah, kind of doing nothing. Yeah. Or you could have that same $1,000 in a Bitcoin account, and you'd actually be up 9% in value. Because it's actually, it, it's, you know, staying up in value. Um, so we're, you know, on one level, and rich people have always known this. Like the one percenters, mm. you talk to any one percenter I've always talked to, they always had like 10% of their net worth in gold. And I'll be honest with you, I never understood it. I was like, is this just like a generational thing? It's like, it's like an old... yeah gray-haired white guy thing to do to just like be in gold or there's like gold bugs that kind of trip you out at times where like they're you know very anti anti-establishment you know rent for the hills yeah. grab your shotgun your gold and your can tuna type of thing <laughs> the world's ending we don't prescribe to that we don't think the world's going to end we don't sure. we don't think the world should go back to a gold standard but we think you as an individual should have the choice on being able to have your own standard mm-hmm. and so how do you want to peg your life um, an email I got from this kid in Argentina is kind of a good example 21 year old kid in Argentina and he's like I want you to know what your platform means to me he's like you may not think I know what I'm talking about because I'm here in Argentina and I'm only 21 but I've been around long enough to see my father's net worth wiped out mm. twice in my lifetime not because he did anything wrong it was policy the Argentinian government place, you know, time, yeah. deflate the currency by 40% represent, repossess 30% of the homes all that sort of stuff um, and uh, he said I know if I'm ever going to achieve upward mobility I can't have my entire life in my currency so I'll never get ahead mm-hmm. so I don't make a lot of money I only make $50 a week but I buy $5 a week of gold on your platform because that's the thing we can you can buy down to pennies so it doesn't matter if you are in Africa or in Argentina or in China, or in Mississauga, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can buy gold uh, in any denomination on the platform and start building a savings account, mm-hmm. start building a savings position to, to preserve your wealth. Um, so I think that, and it's uh, you're democratizing the access of gold uh, to anyone around the world to actually provide uh, stability and upward mobility. And it's not just emerging markets. I mean. There are people in Europe right now that are terrified. Certain countries are going to be the next country to default. Interesting, yeah. Right? And rather than be in euros in their bank account, they'd rather be able to move money into a gold account to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not about just fear-mongering. I think think everyone benefits from having somewhat of a position in gold over time. We've just made that so dead dead simple for someone that, you know, opening up an alternative savings account um, that you can transact with as well. Yeah. So that's phase one is just kind of like having a savings account. Great. But, you know, we talked earlier about global citizenship. People need to send money abroad, remittances. Yeah. It's like a 
billion dollar market. <laughs> I think about six hundred hmm. billion dollar market. People sending money here, here in Canada. It's almost thirty billion dollars. Wow. Uh, Canadians send money back to the Philippines, back to India, uh, Latin America, sure. friends, family, all that sort of stuff. And they get dinged every time. The average transaction is two hundred bucks, which mm. doesn't sound like a lot, but two hundred dollars is a month's salary in the Philippines. Average cost to move money there, eight percent. Wow, right? That's a lot of money. Where, uh, and on the double dip on that is, you know, if, if that person on the other end is dependent on that two hundred dollars every month from you, well, your costs are going up here. And your currency is going down in value here. So that two hundred dollars a year ago may actually cost you two hundred fifty dollars now. Hmm. And so it's costing you more to send that money, and it's costing you eight percent to send it. If you had gold as a balance, you could send the gold to the other person. That person can sell the gold for their local currency for one percent. So you can move money from point A to point B from anywhere in the world using gold as the rail. Yeah. So you're not having to go through currency crosshairs. I know it's a weird concept at first to think of. Yeah. Uh, but again, you're just exchanging value. And the physical goal doesn't move. That's the beautiful thing of this. this yeah. thing. All, all we do on the platform is like, okay, if I, if I had a portion of a bar of gold and I wanted to send you 50 bucks, $50 of my allocation shifts on the digital ledger. It yeah. says, all right, now you own this gold. Interesting. And that transaction can happen within seconds. Yeah. Um, so for person-to-person -person remittances, I think it's incredibly disruptive, uh, but in a positive way, right? Like sure. Because all these other systems, they're, it's kind of a race to zero. Whoever raises the most amount of money, they're mm -hmm. going to reduce their fees on top of all the different bank fees. But there's just, there's just so much friction. <laughs> like when you, when you actually look into the cover and see how a cross-border transaction happens, I don't know if it's fascinating or scary, right? Like... Three banks have to be involved, two payment processors, two oh, yeah. currencies, you know, multiple settlement times. And no wonder compliance and regulatory is an issue because the money has to bounce through like six, six different seven, parties yeah. and everyone's taking a little piece. I was in right? Cuba a couple of months ago. Bought something on my credit card, went from Canadian dollars to U.S. dollars. Yeah. And then U.S. dollars too. And, yeah. then US, and then it was like, how many transactions just to get one thing? Mm -hmm. And exactly. it costs that much more yeah. you know, to process. So... So taking it a step further, where I was excited, it was like, can we transform e-commerce uh, and payments and business-to-business -business payments? Mm -hmm. and, um, it's like I was dealing with a merchant the other day from Carolina. He's Chilean by birth. He sells a lot of e-commerce goods to Latin America. Mm -hmm. And so he takes on all these exotic currencies, Brazilian real, Chilean, oh. as payment that are volatile, right? Yeah. So he's taking on that risk. And they has to deal with the conversion of those. On top of that, he buys his cost of goods from Hong Kong. <laughs> so he's having to deal with buying his cost of goods from Hong Kong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like, I would love to be able to accept Bitgold as a form of payment. And it doesn't matter. Brazilian, Chilean, they buy gold in their yeah. local currency. And gold becomes their international payment tool. Hmm. Right. So use your local currency for local transactions. Yeah. Use gold for everything else. Yeah. Right. So I buy gold. I send uh, gold to the merchant. The merchant receives the gold as payment. Yeah. He then turns around and uses the gold to buy his cost of goods from Hong Kong. Yeah. He's like, you've literally doubled, sometimes tripled my margin, and in fact, opened up new products that I can sell because I can actually make money on it now. Um, so it's, it's very transformative on. on when you have a 
a global ubiquitous currency that is very stable um, and now can be instantly transacted um, much like any other sort of kind of payment system. Well, this is so fascinating to me. I've, I've had you here longer than I had said I would, <laughs> but let's wrap it up very quickly yeah. if, if, if it's possible with this. Um, you guys, Bickle started on the um, on not on the TSX, but you. What was it again? Yeah, it's been a wild ride. So yeah, uh, yeah May fourth at launch. May fourteenth went on the venture exchange. Venture exchange. And um, I recently went on TSX. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the fastest graduations to the main board. Now, what's that like? Is there needs to be a process? There needs to be some yeah. You have to get a, level or whatever. You have to get to a certain level of you know, capitalization. Or? A certain level of capitalization. A certain level of liquidity. A certain okay. level of performance. Um, you know, Roy and Josh have done an incredible job on, on the capitalization of the company. Some very, very strong investors b- behind the company. Mm-hmm. Um, if this was a Silicon Valley company, yeah. this would be a Massive much news. bigger rage. I actually kind of like the fact that we're building this kind of quietly in Toronto, but rapidly. Like, it's one of the, I would argue, is probably the fastest growing fintech company on the planet right now. We're, we're not even a year and we're approaching a million users already. Um, Raised over about all around the world, but in over 150 countries, wow. um, probably 2,000 new users a day are coming on the platform. Um, you know, over 50 million dollars in deposits, um, probably close to 100 million dollars in transactions already, 70 million dollars raised, and this company is like 11 months old. Hmm. So, uh, and uh, to me, it actually reminds me very early days of PayPal. Do I think this company can be hundreds of millions of users and, and impacting billions of dollars of commerce? Yeah. I actually think its benefits, the strengths of Bitgold are in some ways the weaknesses of most other payment systems. Interesting. So I think it has a lot of upside potential. What's, um, you're, you're an advisor at Mars in FinTech. Yeah. Yeah. So I see a lot of FinTech companies. So I was, I was going to ask you sort of now, you know, looking for that white space again, mm-hmm. you know. Um, what are you seeing that you're really excited about in the space? Um, <laughs> what am I uh, seeing that I'm liking the space? Um, I'm a little disappointed actually right okay. now because I think there's a lot of companies that are technology for technology's sake. Mm. I think the challenge is there's either a lack of leadership on some fintech companies. Um, this is where I feel very fortunate in, in my career, where having been on companies that have scaled to this global phenomenon and going through that operational prowess, like operating a company up to 10 employees is one business. Up to 100 employees is a completely different business. Sure. Up to 1,000 employees is another completely different business. Up to 100 million in revenue is another completely different business. So I've been through that rodeo three times now. Yeah. And you learn a lot <laughs> through yeah. that process. Um, and unfortunately, I'm a rare breed, I think. There's not enough guys like me in Toronto okay. that have gone through that rodeo. And so um, there's very passionate, young, smart entrepreneurs, but not enough business operational sense and how to get past the 10 employees or 50 employees. Mm. Um, so I think that's a gap. And that's partially why I, I, I work with Mars, too, because if there's any way I can help benefit... Sure. Some startups, I'm happy to you know, provide some guidance yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Um, 
And there's a lot of payments companies. Lending is another big category. I heard Barwell on the radio the other day. Yeah, yeah. They're so there, there, there's definitely a couple of great companies like you know, Well Simple and Barwell and a few others that are mm-hmm. um, have been able to, to raise some capital and they're they're uh, trying to make a run at it. Um, lending's an interesting space. I, I think the challenge again with any fintech company is getting the scale. The challenge with any big bank is they don't know how to innovate mm-hmm. um, or they can't innovate fast enough. Yeah. And so I think there's a much more strategic approach of rather than sitting here saying we're going to disrupt the banks, um, the idea of how do you enable the banks um, in Have some the ways. banks been, I've noticed that they're opening like innovation centers almost. Like I know Tangerine has a floor yeah. of fintech <laughs> i think they're trying to turn fintech companies into focus groups a little bit um well I was gonna, yeah but they're trying to learn because it may not be the dna within the bank yeah. and that's okay um I, I think there there might be some merit in that uh i think there is definite benefit though of i'm a big believer in strengths and like mm-hmm. i always look at how anyone that kind of i see on a team how do i ma- manage and ma- maximize their strengths um if fintech companies are really good at being innovative, yeah, um, but don't know how to scale and productionalize things, uh, banks may be good at commercialization of bigger products, but can't innovate fast enough. And they also have customers. There's opportunities to blend those together. And um, you know, we're talking with banks around the world right now. They actually see us as not a threat, but as an opportunity. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah it was great for to coming chat. in. Good times.